Good morning. I don't know why it feels like a very sleepy day. Let me encourage you to wake up. Okay. There we go. I will tell you a secret. The way to irritate me is very simple. I did a wedding yesterday at a big church. And it was, there was a wedding coordinator and everything. Wedding coordinators are marvelous, wonderful people. And yet it, they, uh, they tend to approach life differently. I got called Pastor Bruce more times in that one day than in the last year. And I don't like it. Can I be honest with you? Do you know why? I don't call you Fireman Ted <laughs> or Cowboy Bob. And whenever I hear Pastor Bruce, that's what I hear in my head. Cowboy Bob. yo do So there you have it which leads seamlessly into my message about remaining in Jesus. <laughs> Not at all. Anyway, in, in John, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, he wrote five books in the New Testament, five letters, really. He wrote the Gospel of John, which is the, one of the accounts of Jesus' life. He wrote three short letters, which are called the epistles, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. And one of the things that has struck me as I've sort of seen the connections between them, which is one way to study the Bible. You look at some of the themes that run through a writer in the Bible. And one of the things that has jumped out at me is probably best summarized in a phrase that Jesus says that John quotes in the Gospel of John, where as I see Jesus is looking at his disciples and he looks them in the eye and he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. And having seen sort of the, if you haven't read the, the, the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, the, what would happen, the disciples would go, oh yeah, no problem. He's going, mm, no, no, take this in, <laughs> remain in me. He makes a real point of it. And then in the Gospel of the, the first letter, First John, that we're going to look at today, he makes it the point, again, rather strongly, that at a core, a critical element of what the abundant life that God has for us is found in the simple process of remaining, staying true, continuing on the same course, unbroken. Remain in me. Now, I would say it's not really arguable that our culture is not particularly good at remaining and staying true. It's not our strength. We have other strengths. And you may say, not only is it not a strength, I don't even get it. What's the big deal? Why do, why do I have to remain true? Why, why a course unchanged? I like changing course. Maybe in the middle of the stream. I, you know, I don't, what's the big deal about it? Let me just say this. In some areas, there's no big deal at all. You do not have to remain true to your cable provider. They will not remain true to you. If you become a new subscriber to you fill in the blank, you get a great deal, and then six months later, you get nothing because they want the new people in. And so, you know what? I give you impunity. Pastor Bruce says, you may change your TV provider anytime you want. Seriously. Direct. Whoever given you the best HD package, go with it. doesn't matter. There's a number of areas in life that don't matter. However, I think what does matter is that what can seep into our culture and then seep into the way we look at life is this how, how we see everything. We see that there is no benefit in remaining. I remain in anything only so long as by appearances at that moment, it's working for me. 
And when it doesn't, I quickly look the other direction for something new. And in the midst of that kind of thinking, Jesus makes this point of looking at his disciples and saying, I want you to stay constant. Remain in me. That's where you're going to get what you actually want out of life. Why is it so hard not to be fickle? Maybe it's just me, but it seems it's awfully easy to jump from one thing to another. It does seem like the grass is greener. And then if involved in something, why is it that so quickly I can see what I don't have and what's over there? Now, I might be strong in the moment and not jump ship, but what is that about us that sees something else and thinks, oh, that must be better because I don't currently have it? And the, the song, for me, articulates some of that heart's fading. I started out full bore, and then it starts to fade. And then a new desire appears to be building somewhere else. And that which I had committed to my life to and I thought was so important, it turns out it was just a fad. My parents were convinced when I became a Christian that it was a fad and that it would fade. It remains one of the handful of things in my life that, in fact, was not a fad. Now, why did they think that? Because they had seen me. (laughs) They had seen me go from that to that to that. What is it about us that finds it so easy to jump ship? We don't even like the word. If I say to you, give me one word to describe me, and I say the word I would use to describe you is that you're faithful. Don't you feel like a lapdog now? You're faithful. You're loyal. (laughs) It's not a strong word to us. There's something about us that appears to be weak. I'll argue quite the opposite in a few moments, that it may be among the strongest characteristics, the ones, the deepest conviction that we have. I I don't think I should have to even demonstrate or argue that we tend to, in our society, break commitments and not find faithfulness or constancy as a virtue. I'm going to be blunt. This is not meant personally, but I'm going to be really blunt for a few minutes. Half of marriages and in divorce. That's actually not true, you know. Half of first marriages and in divorce. Half the people who, for the first time they're getting married, who stand before one another and say really (laughs) incredible vows, like for better or for worse. I assume when we say that, we understand what worse means for richer or for poor. In other words, if you blow all of our money, I'm in. When life goes tragically bad, I'm in. If I become wildly successful, I don't trade you in in a new model more keeping with my standing now, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer. We say those sorts of things. We look one another in the eye. I, I think we even mean them. I'm willing to bet that most people outside of Hollywood, when they get married, they do not look at their partner and say, for better, for worse, three years maybe. Of those 100% of people who get married for the first time, I'm willing to bet that virtually all of them, when they say, I'm with you to the end, mean it. So what happens? And, and, And maybe you're thinking, well, lots of things. 
Okay, fair enough. Lots of things. Lots of things happen along the way. But in the midst of lots of things happening along the way, there is a rather insidious way of looking at life that I think has crept into our souls. And it is, Alan Love, a friend of mine, uh, he, he runs our small group ministry here. We were talking this week and the concept came to our heads and I think it came to his head first, but I'm stealing it. Delusions of infidelity. We have delusions of infidelity. We have a vision of what it means to be unfaithful that is unkeeping with any form of reality. Somehow we believe, we've come to believe that there's in breaking commitment at not staying constant in the midst of whatever forces, life will be better. Are there times when things must end? Well, sure. But there seems to be this deep-seated notion, delusion, that if I break this, it will almost certainly become better. 50% of first marriages end in divorce. Two-thirds of second marriages do. Three-quarters of third marriages do. Now, if you're on your third marriage, I, I don't mean to demean you. My, my grandmother, who led me to Christ, and who's, who's now, I'm convinced, in heaven with Jesus, who was a wonderful human being, was married five times. Life was hard. It didn't turn out the way she had hoped. And so if you've been married two or three or four times, this is not meant to critique you. What I want to critique is the notion, the deeply flawed delusion, that if this marriage ends, Surely, the next one will be more likely to succeed. That's a delusion. There's nothing in reality that supports that. The idea that if I break a commitment of marriage, my next one more likely is going to work, quite honestly, is crazy. Might it? Sure. You got a 33% chance. But we believe when we walk out of things we've committed to, we believe somewhere deep down that the problem is not me. It's my spouse, my kids, my boss, my job. It's President Obama. It's President Bush. It's capitalism. It's communism. It's the Democrats. Surely it's the Republicans. Have you noticed that through all the changes in our political system, one thing remains constant? You and I. We were who we were when Bush was president and Obama was president, and I'm getting this feeling that perhaps it's not their fault. We have this crazy notion that if we break those things that we said we would be constant in and walk away, that somehow the change of scenery, the change of other people will produce happiness. It's unfounded. And so, Jesus and John look at us and they say, you know what, I don't care if you change your cable company. But, in the midst of forces that will tell you that shifting your allegiance will find you life, don't buy it. Remain in me and I will remain in you and there you will find the life that you actually want. It's in that context that we hit those verses that Steve talked about, verses, quite honestly, that I have struggled with for years. I'm going to read these verses for you in the First John chapter 2. And these are verses that 
at times, I, you know, in my, maybe my worst moments, I just thought John was being cranky. You know, he had a bad day, the coffee machine was out, and he got irritated and, and said these words, because they just seem a bit extreme. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Like, dang, that's strong. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world. So what's he saying? In context, this is what I think he's saying. This, this is the, this is the, the, the uh, situation, historical situation that John is speaking into. You know, all, all communication happens in context. If you want to know the context of 1 John, it's not rocket surgery. Go to the back table. We have a little thing, rocket surgery resources. It will give you the background of 1 John, one page, front side of a page. And it will tell you some of this, which is that here's the context of 1 John. John is writing in the midst of a time when there was an, a teaching that began to erupt in the midst of the church that essentially said this. The body and the soul have nothing to do with each other. Nothing. It, it doesn't matter what you do. The spiritual life is not found in how we act. You can do anything you want. You are free. Didn't Jesus say the truth will set you free? You're free. You're free to act any way you want. It has no connection whatsoever to your soul. Temple prostitution? Sure, why not? Sleep with your mother-in-law? No problem. has nothing to do with your soul. Do anything you want. In the midst of that, John says, you've got to be really careful. Because why do we walk out of constancy? Why do we break commitments? Because something within our soul has desires, deep desires that are not being met, and we are looking. And when we see something, we gravitate toward it. Unmet desires explore new opportunities. And so John sees this teaching. is like, okay, this is really dangerous because people have unmet desires. They need to understand there is a solid place to find those desires met. But if we teach them, do anything you want, okay, I will explore everything. And it'll shipwreck your soul. Because it's not true. The body and the soul actually are connected. And deep down, we all know that. You know that sex isn't just an act. You know what the next morning feels like. And so John says, look, don't buy into something just because how it looks. Going after something just because you crave it. Determining your life based on what makes you feel better than someone else. Trash all of that. That will lead you astray. It will keep you from remaining and the source of the one who gives you life. So remain in Christ, push that other stuff away. That's where John then turns to his section on, okay, why do we, why do we remain in Christ? Seriously, the, the, the thing, every time I read stuff like this, the, the, when the Bible gives me a real clear sort of direction, the questions just 
hit my head. And I'm going to read this section and tell you some of the questions that came to my mind. What John says in verse 24 of the same chapter, See that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you'll also remain in the Son and in the Father. That's, that's in Jesus and God the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive, and, and the anointing, all, all that means is the presence of God. The anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as this anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. John would say, don't give in to the delusions that would tell you just to explore whatever looks interesting at the moment. Because surely, life is found somewhere else. Contrast. Remain in him. And so then I think, okay, there's a part of me that looks to explore new avenues, that wonders what else is out there. There's a part of me that loves academia because I can explore different theories and engage them. There's a part of me that wants to experience different parts of the world and different ways of looking at things and different food. And so what do I get to be crass? What do I get by remaining in Christ? What's he offering me? What's he saying? Three things in that passage he's saying. He's saying, look, I want you to avoid the temptation not to do something wrong, but to walk outside of your relationship with Christ to find fulfillment because... If you remain in him, you get, number one, hope. He says, here's one of the things he promised you, eternal life. And he promised you that life will not end. That no matter what happens, you will always have a relationship with God. And that relationship will culminate in an eternal relationship with him. And so you have hope for every day of your life. If you remain in Christ and you keep your eyes focused on that, then you will have hope. Now, think back to the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He went away. He did everything he wasn't supposed to. Came back, and he got received. Woo-hoo! You know? He got everything back. He didn't remain. Worked out fine for him. Uh, he said, would you read First John? I'll read Luke about the prodigal son. He didn't remain. Worked out fine for him. Okay, riddle me this, Batman. Let's say the prodigal son then came home, and the next day he said, you know what? I tried squandering my money in Vegas. How about Monaco? I didn't try Monaco. That might be it. Dad, could we go through this whole thing again? Could I have someone to go to Monaco? Thanks. That didn't work. I think I'll go back again. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Thanks. Receive. Okay, Monaco. No, that's clearly not it. And there are reasons for that. The people in Monaco just aren't very nice. However, the Swiss. The Swiss are neutral. They have lovely mountains and they have great chocolate. That, my soul needs Switzerland. I'll try that. Dad, one more time. Can we revamp this? I know you're running out of cash. A little bit more, I'll go to Switzerland. Then I'll be happy. Let's try that. The prodigal son walked away. When he came back, he discovered that there was a love that received him even in his fallenness, even in the fact that he had not remained. He found that there was somebody who remained true to him. 
if we live our lives continuing that pattern, what does it mean? Hope begins to die. Our soul begins to shrivel. We don't actually experience what we're supposed to. There is in Christ a power to live hopefully that we will lose if we continue to flit to new avenues. He says you'll get hope. He says you'll also get a connection. You're going to get a relationship with God. Okay, this is not rocket science either. If you want a relationship with somebody, you have to stay in a relationship with them. If you want to grow into a relationship with God, if you believe, if you believe that God has for you a relationship that can fulfill your soul, you're going to have to remain in that relationship. If you don't, you won't. Really. It's just that simple. I spent, let's see, how many years? Let's just call it five, shall we? I spent five years as a Christian. I believed in Jesus and did nothing, zero, nothing, to help my relationship, nothing. I did a lot to harm it, nothing to help it. At the end of that five years, how far had my soul gone, gone in terms of a relationship with the God who made me for himself? Not, not so far. Backwards? Did God receive me? Yes. Did he remain true to me? Yes. Did I squander five years of experiencing soul fulfillment and moving deeper in a relationship with the God who made me for himself? Yes. I did. If you decide today, okay, the whole remaining in Jesus thing is overrated. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to have a relationship with God. I'm going to try Splatoon. Okay. It's about choices. God made you for himself. Promised you that your heart and soul could come alive in him. Said that if you remain in him, over time, increasingly, you will experience a depth and a beauty to your soul and a solidity. A nobility, quite honestly. That you won't find anywhere else. And as if he is saying, please, avoid the temptation to keep flitting around you'll not gain the life that you actually want. And you won't live in reality. I, I just love the way that's put there at the end. You'll know what is real, not counterfeit. What's real? Not counterfeit. Here's one of the things that happens when I read the Bible. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a book in the New Testament that's written to Jewish Christians. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews. And one passage there, it talks about the Bible, and it says this. It uses this really clever analogy. It says the Bible, it's like a sword, and it cuts between bone and marrow. In other words, right to the core, even between the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And what it says is that what happens when we read the Bible, God shows us reality. He strips away the counterfeit, the delusions of our heart. I cannot tell you, bless you, I cannot tell you how many times I've read the Bible going along my merry little way in life and then absolutely struck, almost cold cocked by what's real, not what's false. And my illusions and delusions 
start to crumble. And it's in those moments I have the possibility of beginning to live more powerfully, more engaged with the actual world I'm in than I had before. And it's in those moments my choices become more clear. You don't have to read the Bible. Nobody's going to make you. You don't have to have a relationship with God. You don't have to stay true to that relationship. Unless you want to know God. Unless you want to see some of those delusions start to crash. Unless you want to live more present in the moments of your life. Unless you want joy and beauty and fulfillment. Then you do. Then remaining in Him will give you what your heart actually wants. And so John says that there's lots of tempting stuff out there. I'm not telling you to avoid everything. What I'm telling you is first priority developing a heart that's constant on the things that actually matter. You see, I, I mean, I still have trouble with the word faithful. To me, it still sounds weak, and so I have to rethink it. The one who's faithful is the one who knows what they believe and knows what they want. And so they are not so easily swayed by winds of the day, by trends. They have the courage of conviction to say, sure, that looks entertaining or interesting, and yet I have a sense that if I go that way, it's going to keep me from that which I really want. And so, no. I choose what matters most if, it, if choosing that is going to keep me from it. When I think of faithful and remaining now, I think of noble. I live for what I know to be true and valuable and what can change my soul. I push aside everything else. And so in the midst of the culture and in the midst of our own heart, quite honestly, that looks around like an ADD dog at every new thing, I want you to hear that consistent word of the God who loves you saying, remain in me. Find your heart in mine. Seek after a relationship with me. Don't live in the counterfeit. Live in the real. And then you'll find what your heart actually sought. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of our own heads that often do not want to remain, would you show us the importance of staying true? Seeking after you? reading the words that you give us about life? Would you allow us to hear your spirit when it calls us away from things? Not because it will make us horrible people if we do them, but because it will be counterproductive for what we actually want. Would you push aside legalism and instead give us the freedom of pursuing that which will bring beauty to our soul? Open up before us the world that's found in you. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to be baptizing a young woman named Christina Klinger, and before we do so, I want to show you her story on video.